Hi there, I'm Jim. And I'm Bill. Let's talk teaching. Welcome to Let's Talk Teaching, a podcast from the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology here at Illinois State University. I'm Jim G. Joining me today, Dr. Bill Anderson. He's faculty in the Department of Family and Consumer Sciences here on campus. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Well, we want to talk today. Uh, there's so much we could talk about, and you've been very involved over here at CTLT. But let's start out with something that happened in the last couple of months. You were named the 2017, one of the 2017 Outstanding University Teaching Award winners for tenured faculty on campus. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. So as far as teaching goes, yes. you're someone who, who I have come to respect as someone who's very passionate about oh, teaching. Thank you. But you're also, I think in some ways, kind of pragmatic about teaching. So what we want to talk about today might be some of the practical things that you do as a teacher and how you help students understand the material that you want them to, to, to really critically think about. Okay. And not just not just remember, but to really critically think about. Yes. But let's let's begin with this concept that you've brought to CTLT in a workshop before and you've talked about a lot, which is called okay. an, an interrupted case study. Interrupted case studies, yes. I tripped over that word, I'm not even sure where, um, by Robert Herod. And it was he was using case studies, uh, typical paper format, that's used a lot in a lot of our majors, use case studies at one point in a time, but he was using interrupted case studies where the students would get a portion, mm -hmm. have to come to an initial conclusion, project what might happen next, and they got the next piece of the, inter yeah, mm -hmm. inf the information. It was like a detective movie or mm -hmm. Murder on the Orient Express, you know, where you put one thing together and the other. And I had been using an interview series called 56 Up, Actually, it's 42 up, 49 up, mm -hmm. currently 56, mm -hmm. for several years in one of my classes. And I had used 56 up as material to connect to developmental theory like Piaget or Erickson. Mm -hmm. But it, it was almost made to be an interrupted case study. Mm. So instead of lecture, example, discussion, it became a lecture on a portion of a theory. And then we would meet the seven-year-olds. And we would follow, we would meet seven-year-old Neil and seven-year-old Susie and seven-year-old Bruce in 1963 when they were all asked a, a set of questions in 1963 London. Mm -hmm. And so the, we would stop there and the students would talk about Neil, who was sort of middle class, Tony, who was a West Ender, he was a little lower, mm -hmm. SES, Susie, who was in a private boarding school, and another member of that group that came to be known as Evil John. He's not as bad as he sounds, but very wealthy mm -hmm. family. And from there, I would say using the work of Piaget, uh, the work of Erickson, um, tell me who 14-year-old Nick is going to be next week when we meet him. Tell mm -hmm. me who 14-year-old Susie is going to be next week. And they were generally ready for that. They could use the mm -hmm. theory and say, well, for Erickson, they're going to be forming their own identity. They're going to be working on dreams of who they're going to be when they get older. For Piaget, they would say, well, at 14, you're supposed to be, and that's a big thing, mm -hmm. you're supposed to be entering formal operational thinking. So they're going to be bigger thinkers. They're going to be thinking more abstractly. Um, and sometimes the theories worked and sometimes they crashed. So with the, we meet them next week at 14. The first thing was, what did you predict? Did it work out? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and generally, they, they typically saw that. Whether they were right or not, I sort of let that ferment over the next few weeks, but they were as often wrong. Mm-hmm. They were going with what the 101 version of the theory says this. So when they saw this 14-year-old kid, they saw what they anticipated. Uh, But it becomes more apparent to them as we progress through that format that sometimes life stuff happens and the theory doesn't pan out for, in this case, years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so they began to see theories more flexible and more suggestive and then even more so predictive. Mm -hmm. So we have used that series for mm-hmm. quite a while successfully, I think. I'm familiar with the documentary series okay. uh, from from my studies as a as a amateur film film student okay. way it's back way back series. in the day when it was well, I remember seven up. I don't I, yeah. it, it was not many more than that. <laughs> um, and I never really thought of them as, as sort of you could you could isolate them as case studies, you know, snapshots mm-hmm. in that time. I mean that's kind of the premise behind it, but right. but but then you could you could encourage students to extrapolate forward. So that sounds like what you're doing. That's it. That's it exactly. And Mm -hmm. if we think in terms of Bloom's taxonomy, that top level, the creating level, has uh, some of the descriptors there are inference, imagination. Mm -hmm. So pushing toward that top of the taxonomy, away from the remembering stuff that you mentioned earlier, to Mm -hmm. that inference, imagination, um, has worked really well for us in this class. Mm -hmm. So uh, tell us a little bit, let's take a step back. Tell us a little bit about your discipline, because uh, the the Department of Family and Consumer Sciences seems to encompass quite a lot. So what do you you concentrate on? I'm in human development and family sciences. That's one of the several. We have interior design. We have uh, food, nutrition, and dietetics, apparel, merchandising, and and teacher education, FCS teacher education. So Mm -hmm. basically, we are bundled together in the life stuff. Family relationships, clothing, food, housing. Mm-hmm. So that's, mm-hmm. and I like being in that big picture. By degree, I'm an educational psychologist. I don't have a degree in FCS, but it's a good place to apply this stuff. When I had read up a little bit on interrupted case studies, I was always um, a, a lot of the literature that I read uh, talked about how it was founded in in law schools. Right, uh, Harvard Law School uh, mm-hmm. is often. It'll always come about. up. Yeah, it always comes up. The idea that that uh, um, you would give students just enough of a case to get them started, but you wouldn't tell them how it ended, or you would expect them to go out and find other evidence. Mm-hmm. So, is this something that you you tend to do in the course of one class period? Or is the lesson extended over a long time? How, how would you structure that? Using the 56 up, it's eight weeks in one of my grad classes. Okay. I'm constantly looking for a way to use it in other, mm-hmm. other classes. For mm-hmm. instance, I can use the snippets when they're 7 and 14 and 21 in my adolescence class. I haven't done that yet, but it's, it's on the back burner. Right, right. Um, so I could use that part in the adolescence class, just that age. If I taught the aging class, I may... Time might allow me to use 7 and 56, mm-hmm. or, and I'm hoping there's a 62 because we're all really antsy to see if Neil is still around at 62. <laughs> so there's there's things that can be done there. Mm-hmm. I, um, I have a new one, new for me, 21 Up South Africa. Okay. Um, when these kids were 7, Nelson Mandela was in prison. When they were 14, he was about to be released, and when they were 21, he was president. Mm-hmm. And so they've lived in three different worlds. I use that with a different set of theories this semester for the very first time. But yeah, it could be chopped up. It could be used. And you're right that uh, a lot of the roots for case studies in this format 
go back to law school. Mm -hmm. uh, nursing has used a number like this. Mm -hmm. But um, to my knowledge, there's only been one or two using videos as right. the case study. So right. this is something of a new format. Yeah. Typically what I remember, and actually there were there are videos out there because I remember there was a great series that was on, it might have been on PBS, mm -hmm. in, the, in, in journalism and communication, talking okay. about ethical case studies. Uh, and whatnot, and there mm -hmm. was a great, and I, I'd have to look it up. I, I will, I will try to link it to our show page for this podcast, this oh, episode, um, and some of the other uh, resources that you've been talking about too. We'll link to the documentary series and find some some mm -hmm. information on that. But um, they were ethical case studies, and you would present it, and then so so it sounds like that the key to teaching with this is to not only provide the description of the incident or the description of the, you know, the, the documentary itself, but you have to give the students some sort of a framework yeah. with which to analyze and synthesize mm -hmm. the information out of this. And with us, that's developmental theory again, sure. Piaget, Erickson. As they age up, we sort of leave Piaget behind because most of his research was done in his own children. I assumed at some point they said, you know, dad, please. Yeah, right. <laughs> but we continue with Erickson's work, psychosocial development. Mm -hmm. uh, we began to use the work of Perry intellectual development who sees things beyond um, Piaget's formal operational thinking. So that serves us well into the 30s and the age 40s. I also use a couple of motivational theories that come from my Ed Psych background. Mm -hmm. The one that's most applicable in this series in this class is expectancy value theory to determine why why did Neil make this decision? Mm -hmm. Do I really believe Neil is going to follow through with this this task for the next seven years, do I see evidence of motivation there? So we apply a number of those things to predict. And again, the predicting part puts us up in that rarefied air of bloom with inference and imagination. Mm -hmm. uh, let's expand on that a bit. How do okay. you know that it worked or that it's working? Okay. What, what do you see from students? What do I see from students? They have to give me a two-page write-up Mm -hmm. Every week. They finished seven up. They describe their seven. They predict 14. Now, at 14, I get one that they've, they haven't met 14-year-old yet, so they go over their predictions. They anticipate using theoretical terms and theoretical structures and then respond as to whether they were right or wrong. But how do I know it works? Um, about four years ago when I started doing this, I'd had a, just a pre-test, post-test. Mm -hmm. for the theoretical forms that I've mentioned several times already, the theoretical structures that we measure by. And since then, we've done a pattern match coding with three years' worth of students where we look at their uh, first and last essays, coding line by line to show cognitive growth. And it generally shows a move from the application, the simple application of the theory up until the evaluation of the theory, where they're mm -hmm. actually taking pieces apart. So we've got the pretest, post-test, and the coding. And there's a, we also use an IDEA to assess our own teaching in mm -hmm. CAST in the College mm -hmm. of Applied Science and Technology. And a couple of those points on there are relevant to this, one of them being found ways for students to answer their own questions. So I'm looking for a couple of things on the IDEA and triangulating those three things. But mm -hmm. for four years, it's indicated the move from application at the beginning more to evaluation and creating ideas at the end, mm -hmm. as well as the pretest, post-test, showing about a two-letter grade swing. So, yeah. yeah <laughs> that's a, that's No, but that's, I mean, that's the kind of rigorous assessment that we, we wish we could all unearth in our, uh, yeah. in our teaching. Mm -hmm. That's great. That's awesome. Talking about all of that detailed assessment mm -hmm. that that uh, that you do, 
to, to see if it works or not. There also has to be some sort of, I mean, there, ha, there there's a reason why you enjoy teaching. I, pre, I am presuming at this point, I'm making an assumption that you <laughs> no, enjoy it's, this. It's a good assumption. Yeah. What is it about, because uh, I know you've done a lot of work mentoring graduate assistants or graduate students, I should say. So I know you've done a lot of work mm-hmm. mentoring graduate students. Um, what is it about that process that you like? Uh, same thing. It's it's the discovery. I'm something of a constructivist, I guess, when it comes to my own philosophy. And if I'm doing stuff right, it should lead them to a place where they just trip over the next big thing, that mm-hmm. aha moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, William James said that real learning has to come with the force of revelation. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of a, I don't know if you have heroes in Ed Psych, that'd be pretty nerdy, but I would... I just like his his pragmatism. Sure. And so if we're setting these things up and I don't muddy the waters too much and let stuff be discovered, then they will find over the first four or five weeks where theory stalled. Then maybe two weeks later into the study, they see why it stalled, a piece Uh of information that they did not originally have. And even as grad students in this class, they come from education, psychology, sociology, some human development, but most of them enter this class with a 101 level understanding still mm-hmm. of, of, mm-hmm. of developmental theory, and they see it become far more flexible. They let them see something that Erickson says should start around age 45 and 35. They let them see uh, early pieces of that in the 14-year-old as they look back. So mm-hmm. they see these not as a stage ends and one begins, but lots of overlapped, and it gets a lot more a lot more human that way. We had to, uh, before we started recording, and I'm not I'm not going to give away any way uh, give away any of your teaching secrets per se. <laughs> but before we Please started, tell rec- me. <laughs> before we started recording, I said, "How you doing? How, you know, what, what, how's it going today?" And you had and you said you had a very good day that that something worked in the classroom. It sounds yeah. like or in a lesson. Um, and uh, the again, without giving away any details mm-hmm. for future classes of yours. Um, you you have a situation where you uh, uh, in, uh, to to make a point or to help students to learn. You kind of stack the deck. Yeah. Um, talk about that a little bit because okay. I'm I'm fascinated with this well, idea that as teachers we don't always have to tell them everything or tell them the whole truth. <laughs> teachers just, trick people into learning. Sometimes. We just have to make the stuff uh, discoverable. Right. You know. Well, this is class multicultural family studies. It was it's a new class for us. It mm-hmm. started in the fall of 2016. I taught it then, and it was very much a service provider oriented class. A lot of our students will be child life specialists or adoption specialists, and they will be working with a variety of ethnicities and a variety of religions. So as a result, we would talk about Latino culture for a couple of weeks, Native American culture for a couple of weeks. But the following semester, we had Charlottesville. Mm -hmm. And it, it could no longer, that class couldn't stay a service provider class that would be it would feel to me like I was phoning it in so we have moved uh, keeping that part intact but I've added 10 different student uh, presentations in there and I'm not sure if you're familiar with the taking sides books from McGraw Hill there's uh, like a taking sides on human development and basically it would be a topic um, is racism a permanent part of American culture, for instance. Mm-hmm. And then this book would give you a, a two-page blurb on that and the most extreme yes article they could find and the most extreme no article they could find. Mm-hmm. And most of us don't make it make our decisions at those two extremes. Right. So when we do a Taking Sides presentation in class, that's all they're, they're allowed to use. Mm-hmm. And so they, their assignment is to sort of blow up the topic, find the gaps, find not what's being addressed, 
And some of the topics that we've used in multicultural family studies this time have been is, well, is racism a permanent part of American society? Is mass incarceration of blacks and Latinos the new Jim Crow laws? Is gentrification a new form of segregation? Mm -hmm. So these are hot-button topics, and I want them to explore this. But yes, we are using Confederates in the class who are in the class, a teaching assistant, and they have to meet with her to fine-tune their presentation before they give the presentation in class. And, and they do. They work through their what the material that they're showing, that they're talking about. They work through their PowerPoint slides. But the one area that's not discussed as openly is the teaching assistant realizes that she's to keep them from taking the easy way out when it gets to the questions, mm-hmm. as opposed to, is racism permanent in America? What do y'all think? And, you know, then we have chatter. Mm-hmm. But uh, just uh, forcing them to form questions, then order those questions so that they're actually going somewhere. And I think mm-hmm. that has been very successful. Mm-hmm. We have, uh, I think we dove deep a few times. Uh, we have disagreed several times. No casualties, no raised voices, <laughs> right. but there has been disagreement. Yeah. Uh, but the um, each time we've done that so far this semester, we've run out of time. Yeah. People are still chatting because it's it's safe to ask the tough questions. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I can replicate this exactly next semester or not, but I'm certainly going to try. Sure. It, it may be a product of its times to some extent. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe they're very open to this right now mm-hmm. because of what's going on in the world. But I also, I mean, first of all, it's a great problem to have that you're running out of time because the discussion I, is going I so long. It. I do. You know? So, and just to clarify, the teaching assistant is not giving them the questions. No. She's encouraging them to find those questions. Right. So she's kind of an extra, she's sort of an extra guide, an extra, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I know where you're going. But yeah. yeah her, her own only instructions from me yeah. was don't let them get away with the surface level questions. Sure, sure. And, and that has not happened. Just that little bit of permission. I think the first two or three of those that we did were a little mm-hmm. tough. The class also had to discover that things were not going to blow up. We weren't mm-hmm. going to lose tempers. Mm-hmm. We weren't going to have to choose sides. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't a debate. Um, and did you did you explicitly say that to students? Did you explicitly lay down some instructions, or did it did it naturally just come out of the community that you've already built so far? This I semester? think it's a it's an it's a natural event. The only instructions for the the presentation itself is you are to use these materials. This mm-hmm. yes, this no article. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're to make sure that the class is on the same page with you with whatever terminology there is. Let them know what your first ideas were, your first take on this question. Two, maybe two people were a yes and two people were a no. What was your first impression before you looked at anything else? Mm-hmm. And then they deliver the yes and no sides. And then they talk a little bit about the process of consensus, whether they were able to agree or not. And usually, well, so far this semester, they haven't been able to come to agreement. And those have been good. Mm-hmm. If we have three yeses and one no at the end, the next question is what's keeping you apart? What piece of information are you waiting for that keeps you from going to this side? Right. Uh, and then from there, it just goes into the questions, and then they're required to tie it up. And the way I require them to tie it up is in five years or ten years, this question will look like. So, mm-hmm. again, I'm back to the 
interrupted case study thing of jumping toward the future a little sure. bit and inferring, mm-hmm. based on what I know now, I think mm-hmm. this is going to happen. Mm-hmm. But the conversations have been really good. That's great. And one final question about that. How do you... Um, how do you evaluate students on that? What sort of evaluations do you do? How do they get graded on it? Right. We have a rubric, and this, there's several items on there. One is their introduction to the question, and the top grade for that is the topic is, are Native American mascots in sports racist? And if you just leave it there, you're not doing very well. Give some examples. Give your first reactions to that as a group. Um, mm-hmm. Then you know we're graded on the yes or no side. Did they find specific things between those two articles that they could put head to head in conversation, or was there one area that they thought was really important that was addressed in one article and omitted in the other? Okay. And then from there, it's their process of consensus. What conversation did they have? Mm-hmm. Uh, general ideas. I want everybody to know what both sides of the argument are, and then. The usual stuff, how did you present, did you read off the slides, that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But that process of consensus and the student involvement that results from the questions they brought with them, that's the bulk of the grade. Okay. And generally, well, this semester they've been all A's, but... Mm You don't think I've been too easy there, but they've been great discussions. Well, and you have you can say that with confidence because you built out the rubric ahead of time, yeah, so you have that did. structure to, to to kind of do that gut check as a teacher: am I being too easy or or am I yeah. being too hard, and whatnot. Yeah. We've we've talked several times about rubrics on our pokey little podcast okay. here. So, with those rubrics, generally, if as I write from lower to higher, I generally start out with something that would be comprehension or remembering level over mm-hmm. here. So I'm I'm. Mm-hmm genetically connected to the taxonomy somehow. And by the time I get up here, what would be the top points? That's going to be the inference, the Mm -hmm. imagination, the what ifs Mm -hmm. and the maybes and the why nots. So Mm -hmm. there's that, that depth that I hope is built in across there. Mm -hmm. Another topic quickly to explore um, would be talking about teaching philosophies and um, as part of the teaching portfolio process, which was part of the Outstanding University Teaching Award process, right. um, you had to do a teaching portfolio. Within that is a, is a statement of teaching philosophy. Mm-hmm. Tell me about what led you to create your te- – what, well, what's in your teaching philosophy and okay. what led you to create it, shape it that way? I think I started with someone else's philosophy way back when, when I was applying for jobs right out of grad school or something. But mm-hmm. it was like a brief introduction – Learning is, teaching is, and then a sort of wrap-up. And I've kept those things in there, although it's probably in version 11 by this point. Sure. Uh, But who am I as a teacher is where I started, and I'm a product of my own teachers, for good or bad. I hope that I'm as good a teacher as my 11th grade English teacher, Miss Bernice Martin, just a fine teacher. Um, I hope that I'm not like a conducting professor that I had later as a music a music major who sort of on that day would just grade sort of on the fly. Mm-hmm. So that that general idea, but for me then, what is learning? And again, I mentioned a little earlier that I'm more on the constructivist side of that. Mm-hmm. I got to add something that touches this piece and adds something new from that. Um, I think the core of a good philosophy as I would see it, is describing what you really actually honest to goodness do in the classroom Mm -hmm. as opposed to a philosophy that has all the right buzzwords, Uh, you know, constructive learning, critical 
thinking, critical reflection, several any other buzzwords that you want to drop Student in. Student engagement. Yeah. All of that's those. That's a good one. Yeah, that's I a good may, one, yeah. I may use that one. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> but, yeah, if it's going to be of any good, if you're going to be able to gauge yourself by it, and if it's going to tell your DFSC or your, your faculty status committee on the college, if it's going to tell them what you really do, mm-hmm. it's got to be what you really do in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think mine shows that I am a little more of a constructivist, that I am not very, um, I don't have a positive view of corporate education. Mm -hmm. I am a very much liberal arts grounded. I want the discovery to be the students. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm probably not getting to your question, but I think the general idea is write what you really do in the classroom Mm -hmm. as opposed to write writing a winning document. And I probably just had 99% of anybody listening going, well, yes. Well, I mean, it sounds simple on the surface to yeah. some extent, but there is a sort of bravery in writing for yourself as an audience as much as for mm. a committee or for someone else. I mean, obviously you have to keep the ultimate audience in mind, but you do that later, don't you? First, I you have so. to, don't you have to first kind of build, like you said, be honest to what you're doing Mm-hmm. Uh, in the classroom. What about what you wish to do in the classroom? In other words, is, is there an aspirational aspect to, to a teaching philosophy, or is it just descriptive of where you're at? I, mine is mostly where I am at, but the aspirational part of that, the aspirational part would be, how am I going to improve? Mm-hmm. How am I going to get better between now and the next couple of years? And that's CTLT to a large degree, the books that you read, uh, SOTL work. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea of the uh, 56 up as an interrupted case study was a really cool idea, and I inherently knew that it worked, but not until I had done the pretest, post test, and the mm-hmm. other things did it wither its way into the into the philosophy. This idea of interrupted case studies as student discovery, mm-hmm. and now that has a place in there now because it's it's been tested. Right, But yeah, it is, the aspirational part is what will I be doing? Will I be able to take some classes? How many hours can I get at CTLT? Yeah. Um, what books am I reading? Uh, those usually find their way in there also. And what am I learning from my students? Uh, I guess there's aspirations for teaching and student learning. Right. But I've been happy in my own little realm of improve, yeah. trying to improve myself a little more than those, I guess. Well, in, in, instead of maybe aspirational per se, it, it sounds to me like it, it is an excellent tool for reflection, for reflecting on your teaching. Mm-hmm. How often do you visit your teaching philosophy? Once a year. Do you usually. really? Yeah. Do you really? Okay. It, it's a part of our package that, we are, that our departmental faculty status committee look at every year. Uh-huh. It doesn't necessarily change every year. I I think it would be atypical to change every year, but mine mine does, not because right. I'm special or anything, but I just discovered something along the way last year, yeah. you know, that says this better. I recently read The Slow Professor, mm-hmm. and finally, ah, wow, now I've got a term for what I want to be. There you go. You know, I've there got a go. term yeah. for this. So that aspiration has been self-improvement for me, for sure. me largely. When we're talking about teaching philosophies... yes. You're, you're writing for your committee, so your committee's going to see this, or, you, mm-hmm. or, or you know, colleagues are going to see this. But where are you at as far as a statement of your teaching philosophy in, say, a syllabus or on a, on a website that your students are using or something like that? Is it important to be explicit about that, or do you prefer uh, that they discover that uh, through the course of, of working with you for a semester? I haven't thought about that very much. I had connected my philosophy by 
on a website to a couple of grad syllabi that they use it so they'd know a little bit more about me. I don't know if that provided anything for them or not. I don't really mm-hmm. know who accessed that. But uh, that's intriguing since you say that. I might. What would that class look like if I were a little better known, if they did understand where I was going with that? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And, and uh, this is something, a question I've yeah. asked myself, how much of me do I need to explain up front as I'm trying to get a, a group of, and I'm teaching mainly undergraduate students mm-hmm. in, in communication, as I try to get this group to discuss, and we discuss some somewhat uncomfortable things because we're talking about performance and we're talking about exposing ourselves and we're also mm-hmm. talking about the very superficial nature of some of the media industries and 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 horrible phrases like generalized american english and uh, and all of that yes. stuff so uh maybe there is no answer there but it might be something to think about so i i do tell them at the beginning of the uh the semester that i try to teach so that they can discover things along the way uh-huh. um and i do tell them that if your idea is you need to complete these things get a degree fine. If yeah. that works for you, knock yourself out. But I would prefer that you would engage and discover and challenge me. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you offer to rewrite a question? So I, t- I say these things on day one, and, and a few people take me up on it. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about that. I'll have to think about that a little more fully. Maybe I need to be a little more revealed. I don't want to say the mystery, but there may be value in, just as there's value in students discovering things about the discipline, there may be, I don't know, there may be... Yeah. Well, that there, yeah, we'll have that, to. That goes back to expectancy value theory, right? Yeah, it, exactly. Would they value this yeah. a little more if they understood a little bit where I was coming from? Would that up the motivation? I don't know. Right. But now I've got another idea to work on. So. Well, well, there you go. Uh, well, there you go. Well, you've given us a lot of ideas to work on today. So, Bill, thank you so much. My pleasure. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Let's Talk Teaching. You can find out more about our podcast and about some of the topics we talked about today. We'll link them on our website, ctlt.illinoisstate.edu. Go to the podcast link in the upper right of the page. For Dr. Bill Anderson, for all my colleagues here at the Center for Teaching, Learning, and Technology, until we talk again, happy teaching.